a glass of water, a cup of hot water with lemon to start the day, being able to um, feel the grass under my feet, feel the dirt in my fingers, remembering that that is what I actually am, that is who I really am. All of those practices, and they don't have to be so formal. And I think that um, sometimes formalizing it and feeling like, okay, this is the structure and this is what I do every day and this is how it needs to go, that gets in the way of creating a safe space for myself. It makes it need to exist in this world that is not safe, that is not about the fluidity of myself. So (laughs) to get all the way around to answering your question, um, it is a day-by-day journey that continues to change. I'm Anika Noni Rose, and this is Being Seen, an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on Black women, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. There's so much to say about safety and Black women, so much that is lacking, so much nuance that hasn't been explored, so much that has been placed upon us without our consent, without our voice. And it is so essential, the ability to feel safe when and how one wishes, to create our own definitions of it, to allow those definitions to evolve, to have others see safety as a Black woman's right, an imperative, something that they need to help create. What kind of structures do we need in this world to honor, uphold, and prioritize our safety? What kind of spaces? To begin the work of building them ourselves and in community, we have to start by asking, what makes us feel cherished and protected? What are the conditions that would make us feel safe? Arya Saeed, transgender advocate and political strategist. So safety can be defined as the condition of being protected. What does that look like for you, that condition? Describe that space, um, definitely from a physical standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint and in any other way that you can think of, um, the space of being protected. What is your freedom dream, as we often say on this show, of living in safety? Um, I think... To be able to live without sort of this like pending doom or fear. Um, I don't know if other people always experience that, but that is something that I think as as much as my life has changed from, you know, coming to San Francisco as a teenager and like being homeless and doing sex work to survive and and then now like you know, doing the work that I'm so lucky to do. I think there's still a way that I have this sort of fear and pending doom. Um, Even just going outside to go to the corner store can 
feel like a production for me. Um, and so... Explain, explain that for me. Explain that. Go further with that I if think, you don't mind. I think I... Um, James Baldwin used to talk about double consciousness in America. And I think... Um, for me, as a Black trans person, as a Black woman, as a... Um, all, all of those things combined, I think there's a way that I have, like, a triple consciousness of safety and the and just my worldview. I think there's obviously, like, we see violence against Black people so much more than we've ever seen. We've known it's existed. I think as Black people, we've been raised to be cautious in particular mm-hmm. ways from our grandmothers, our mothers, like, you know, call me when you get to XYZ or, you know, do this, mm-hmm. come home before the street lights come on. Like, there are these traditions that we've had to, to create protection for ourselves, right? And I think that paired with, you know, the videos that we've seen of Black people being murdered and it's become so commonplace. And then there's a reality for me that um, so many Black trans women have been murdered over the last, um, well, it feels like every year the numbers just keep growing and the stories are not unlike my own. I think when I first, as a younger person, was definitely like, oh, that happened to them because they were at XYZ or they were doing this. And, you know, that then is why that happened. But then as we began to sort of see and witness, sometimes people were just going to the store, which is very much any one of us. Um, And so I think, yeah, I think that's something that I still struggle with is this pending doom. Um... This, this fear of of even doing some of the most basic things. And so I don't want to say I'm agoraphobic, but I definitely have seen myself and so many other women that I get to work with, trans women that I get to work with, um, where we're so hypervigilant of our safety all the time um, that sometimes you just don't want to leave the house. And I think freedom for me from that looks like enjoying the most simple things without having to sort of analyze people's facial expressions as I'm walking through a crowd or down the street and like looking back and forth and over my shoulder to see if I am safe. And I think that is something that I um, would love to shed. That's what liberation looks like for me at this moment. Safety from the outside. But what about safety within? How do we create internal spaces that protect us and shelter us? Jessamine Stanley is a yoga teacher, the writer of Yoke, and so much more. She's doing the work to make visible the hearts and bodies of Black women, often denied by a practice that we've taken part in for a very long time. With some of our other guests, we've focused on what safety looks like in the context of external spaces. But I'd love to start a com- our conversation with you talking about our internal spaces, internal spaces. In thinking about your personal journey to becoming a yoga teacher and practitioner, what has the journey of finding safety within yourself, being a safe space for yourself in a world that does not practice covering you in safety. What, what does that look like? 
I feel like I am constantly redefining safety for myself, uh, owning the spaces that no one else can touch, that no one else can come near, and knowing that my proximity to those spaces, to the, the spots that I can't there's no one to hold me in it. There's no one to, um, there's no one who's going to be able to do for me what I, what needs doing that kind of attention is really the key to me being able to show up at all anywhere on any day ever, because I, at so many points in my life have not felt safe and continue to not feel safe, honestly. I think whenever, when I turn my attention to the outside world, when I uh, fixate on those around me or where I am, and especially as we hurtle forward together into an increasingly chaotic future, it is very easy for me to feel unsafe. And this is, I think, pretending as though for for Black people, for queer people, for um, literally for anyone who is marginalized, there, I would say, is active effort exerted to make us not feel safe on a day-to-day basis. I think that yoga is so often overblown as being like, oh, you got to go to this class. You got to wear this outfit. You got to practice for this duration of time. And it's just not even that deep. Yoga literally means union. It means to bring together. So it's always about bringing together different elements of self. And so anytime that you are sitting with the complexity of being human, that is practicing yoga so that literally everything is yoga and I always feel like to just to start the most important thing is to just sit down and be quiet just sit down close your mouth don't talk you don't even have to close your eyes but to just sit in silence and see what happens when that silence comes up because I think that a lot of us are afraid to sit in silence we're afraid of the quiet because when you sit in silence now all your thoughts are here (laughs) everything that you're running from is popping up and just letting all of that be there that's what I think refilling the cup really is it's just letting the chaos be there not trying to drown it out with happiness parade or like saying oh this is the way that I need to think in this world it's like just just let it all be there and when you can really bear the weight of all of it it's so much easier to go out into your life and bear the weight of everything else you don't have to deal with and the reality is that we are now living in a time where it is impossible for us to ignore the chaos Uh, the world has shifted in such a way where the make-believe that I think was happening before is just not an option anymore what about the spaces that are quote-unquote supposed to keep us safe in what ways do they particularly disadvantage Black women? Mariam Kaba is an abolitionist, writer, and educator. She dreams of creating, and she works it into being in community. 
there, there's, of course, an often repeated refrain that prisons, police, and carceral systems keep us safe. Yeah. This is obviously not true for many people, um, arguably mm-hmm. for any people, but it is particularly not true for black women. Uh, one example from this in your book is Marissa Alexander. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about her and or any other example that you think speaks to the ways that these systems actually make us unsafe, both directly and indirectly? Sure, happy to do that. Do you want to just point out that um, the difference between prison and jail is simply that um, when you're in jail, it's pre- usually pre-adjudication of your case. So before you've had a chance to be actually tried and convicted. And if you're in prison, it's usually after the adjudication of your of your case. And in fact, in the U.S., jails are known to be sometimes more horrendous and heinous than prisons are because of the fact that so many people churn in and out of jail every single year. We have mm. 10 million people who go through jails every single year in this country, 10 million But in terms of um, Marissa and Marissa's case, um, here was a black woman, a mother of three children. She had just had her her daughter nine days before the incident that occurred. Um, She went, she had been in a situation with her husband where she had had to take orders of protection out against him for the abuse that he was responsible for perpetrating against her. Um, and you're right. When she went home one day because she thought he wasn't in the shared home, she had left at that point, was living with her mother. She went back to get some things and she ended up st- being there when he arrived with two of his children at that time. Um, and uh, he began immediately to berate her, to threaten her. And she ended up, in long story short, uh, having a gun that she had in her car um, that she was licensed to carry in Florida. She used that gun and fired a warning shot in the direction of the ceiling. It got stuck on the top part of the ceiling. And uh, for that, she was uh, prosecuted by Angela Corey, who was the district attorney of Duval County at the time. And she was uh, facing a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years for illegal discharging of a firearm and and assault uh, in the first degree. So long story short is that after deliberating for less than 20 minutes, the jury came back and found her guilty. And she was imposed by the judge a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence for trying to save her own life, defend her own life. And um, you're right to say that often the very systems that we use and we say are there to protect us are in fact the source of our unsafety. They're the source of our insecurity. When does visibility make us feel powerful? And when does it make us feel unsafe? Another system in which we are often deeply unsafe as Black women is online. We have both heard the stories and experienced ourselves, the vitriol, the policing, the silencing that happens for no reason other than other people's perceptions, biases, and assumptions about our bodies, our lives, and our very selfhood. We are not safe when we are silenced. There is um, tokenization. There's um, (laughs) just straight up silencing um, of 
I think this happens on all platform, all social media platforms to a wide variety of Black creators, but especially Black people who identify as women. There is, especially if you live in a curvy body, there is a... Um, a silencing factor whenever we share our bodies because there is so much fear of our power. And that is something that is, has silenced me many times in the past and, and in the present, to be completely honest. And seeing what happens when I'm, when I feel silenced, when I feel like I need to fit into the box, that is the teacher. That is the fullest form of the pose to me. The whole point is to have that experience. What happens when you silence yourself? What happens when I silence myself? Because ultimately, that's the only person that's getting in the way. I can blame it on the media. I can blame it on uh, the people who own the apps. I can blame it on the people who are scared of the way that I show myself. But ultimately, it's coming down to how I see myself. And that opportunity to see myself is the source of the strength. It's where that divine power comes from. And the more that I can just be open to that experience and approach everything with an open heart and not be afraid to fall and not be afraid to be ashamed and not be afraid to think twice or to feel different later, that feels like I'm granting myself the permission to be a whole human being, a whole flawed human being, which is something that Black women have in the mainstream never been allowed to be. We are allowed to be very specific ideas in the mainstream. And recognizing this, even this idea of allowance and what it means to um, to look to even subconsciously to look to some other person power presence for allowance. That is the fullest form of the pose as well. And so I I find myself just trying to approach all of these experiences from the place of what can I learn here? What, What can I be grateful for? And knowing all of that, how can I keep walking forward? Because as long as my eyes are still open, I'm still in the game. It's not over yet. And there's still a lesson to be learned. Safety has to be realized in community. What are the systems we can create to make Black women safe where we live and where we work? If the formal structures are failing us, what do they need to be replaced by? How can everyone be held accountable for helping to build and uphold these spaces of accountability and collective care? One of the things that you talk about in your work is the importance of creating systems and spaces of accountability. What do you think that looks like on a community level, particularly in places where Black women, and um, let's talk specifically about Black trans women, are experiencing so much violence and such a lack of safety. Yeah. What are the successes that you have observed that we can learn from? I just like to always remind people that the vast majority of people who experience harm never turn 
to the current systems that we have in place. Because if they did, those systems would collapse under the weight of the harms that exist out in the world. So, for example, we know that when people are actually raped or sexually violated, the majority of survivors never go to the cops in the first place. So they've chosen either nothing or something else over using the current systems that are in place. So I always want to remind people when they talk about these things as though they're universally used, they're universally desired, they're universally accepted. They're not. And so that means that for me, I like to think about what are the things that we could put in place in our communities that make it so that when you are a survivor of harm or you are victimized in any sort of way, that you have a soft place to land. So I think we need to be thinking about the other ways that we can make sure that folks get what they need. I also think a lot of times when we think about harm, we think of the person who caused the harm first, and we think about all the resources that need to go towards them. And I want to think about the other side, about the people who have been harmed. Why aren't all the resources going in that direction? I think, for example, around domestic violence, where I worked for many years in that area, so many survivors would tell me, I don't want to have my partner incarcerated I want the violence to end. And one way that it could end, for example, was if I could have access to housing so I can leave where I'm at, take my children, and go somewhere else. But so often they didn't have the economic wherewithal to be able to do that or a community that could provide them with the economic needs that they have to be able to do that. So I love this project, for example, that Sonia Passi has created called Free From, which is a a project that gives direct money to survivors. No strings attached, right? You know what you're going to do with the money. You know what you need for the money. Here it is, $250, $500. You People think that it's a million dollars that we're talking about. No, people need often just a little to be able to get over, to get to the next side. So to me, how we end domestic violence has to do in large part with whether or not people have affordable and free housing so that they can leave the circumstances that they're currently in to keep themselves and their families safer. I just think we have to think about safety as collective care. What is the relationship of justice to safety? And how do we heal? In one of her essays in Bad Feminist, the brilliant Roxane Gay, an earlier guest, asks us to consider whether or not safety is an illusion. And whether or not we believe that, we would all likely acknowledge that we can never avoid harm completely. If that is the case, what can we create for when it finds us? Who will catch us and give us somewhere to rest, a soft place to land? In your book, you quote Kwame Ture, who says, quote, When you see people calling themselves revolutionary, always talk about destroying, 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 but never talk about building or creating, they are not revolutionary. They do not understand the first thing about revolution. It's creating, unquote. Mm. Building Mm. on that, what do we need to imagine into being to reduce the harm that Black women face? Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely, you've already pointed out trans Black women. I think... Women and, and gender expansive people are particularly marginalized and, and particularly targeted. And there's a beautiful, um, Farrah Jasmine, uh, the writer Griffin, um, wrote a piece recently that I really loved about how 
Toni Morrison um, had in her novels a very expansive idea of justice, particularly justice for Black women. Mm -hmm. And the thing I loved about that piece is because of my own politics, I feel very tied to this, which is what are we creating in terms of spaces in our community for people to heal? What are we making that allows people to be able to have soft places to land when inevitably we're all going to be harmed because we're human beings and therefore we're all vulnerable to harm just in different ways. And I want to build up the spaces in our communities to be less judgmental, to be less victim-blaming, to offer more options to people beyond just you can either choose to prosecute someone or not. And most people are choosing not to prosecute. So what else could we have? And I think about places like I've noticed more and more people offering um, kind of spaces where people could go and rest Mm. and just take time away. I think like, can we have a hundred million of those places all around? Can we have a place where if you are struggling and you just need someone to like take care of your children for a while, that you could just have a place where you could, you know, send your kids for a minute, a week, uh, just to take a respite and a breath, I think that would also have an impact in reducing child abuse because then the people who are stressed out and having other things going on are less likely to harm their children because they have a place that's safe to make sure that their kids can stay while they get themselves together again. I I mean, I just, I can think of a million examples. I I want everybody to have friggin' free healthcare. I want everybody to be able to eat and to have food that's nutritious. I want everybody to be able to afford a place to lay their head down. I mean, these are the things to me that the material safety that's needed for us to have interpersonal safety. Because interpersonal safety is mirrors. It mirrors the state's violence against us, you know? And I think we can't have one without the other. So they have to work together all the time. What does the future look like when we create and dream into being safe spaces for all Black women? You know, we deserve to be able to be free to live. Um, Now, safety is certainly something that we can evaluate and try to promote from a literal and physical point of view with protection from the elements, physical violence, from harm in any number of ways. But it can also be a powerful means of representing comfort in our own skin and community Mm. with others. So what does Compton's Transgender Cultural District mean for transgender people the world over as the first physical location specifically earmarked for them and in honor of the legacy of trans people that came before them? You're amazing, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I am so lucky to be able to to lead this work because I think I get to think of the future. Um, So much of social change work that exists is focused on responding. And I and my team, we get to daydream. Mm. That's what I love about my job the most is we get to imagine a world in which trans people are empowered instead of living and, and working in a world in social in a social change context of responding to the threats of violence or responding to legislation that seeks to harm or responding to 
injustice, right? And so the transgender district, we also, we have two names. So the transgender district and then Compton's transgender cultural district. Um, that was our um, initial name at our founding. We wanted to honor uh, the Compton's cafeteria riots, which took place in August 1966 at Turk and Taylor Street intersection. Um, we we know the story. I think Stonewall is probably the most famous riot <laughs> because it happened multiple nights. Um, but trans people fought back against police. Um, the police would come and raid and arrest people um, at that time for cross-dressing laws. And so they would arrest trans people, drag queens, what have you. And um, a trans woman threw hot coffee in a police officer's face that started a riot um, here in San Francisco. And we wanted to honor that legacy, but also acknowledge that while we have such a huge trans population in this neighborhood, um, most of our folks are living in abject poverty. Most of our folks are living, um, making less than 10000 a year in income. And we really just wanted to cement that we are here and that we have stories and we have history that most people don't have access to. I think ultimately our work is is hope, hopefully inspiring trans people around the world. We've seen so, um, we've received so many affirmations from trans people in Africa and Asia and Europe. And uh, we get hundreds of messages daily saying, I wish that was something that happened here where I live in Kenya or in Germany or wherever it is. And mm. I think that's what makes me sleep at night is knowing that we're, we're building those spaces formed by trans people, a community that has been ignored in the broader LGBT community the last 50 years of sort of LGBT equality. Uh, we were the most impacted at that time. We were always the first to be arrested, right? That's who the police would see. There was a visual indicator. Oh, uh-uh, no, you're coming with us, right? And then, you know, the broader sort of gay and lesbian community was like, great, we got our rights and we got gay marriage. <laughs> and trans people were like, we've been sitting here starving, fighting for our lives. And so I think it's a testament to that work as well, that, uh, that Black trans people, um, I think civil rights and, and the movement work that we do is in our DNA as Black people. And I think... Um, it only gets more amplified as a trans person where you become a siren for change. And I think so many Black trans women have led that. And so this work is a byproduct of me and my sisters, Honey and Janetta, in co-founding the world's first trans district, but also as a love letter to Black trans women that we can be empowered, that we can thrive, uh, that we can reimagine a world um, in which we don't receive the brunt of violence, but that we can have opportunity. Is embracing specificity and evolution a way to honor each person's relationship to safety? It isn't necessarily one thing, and it doesn't stay the same all the time. Some days we might wish for it more than others. Our experience of it may evolve as we do, but still, there has to be a baseline. And that needs to involve prioritizing Black women's lives and listening to our voices when we define what we need to feel safe. 
allowing us the space to change our relationship to safety as our internal and external landscapes shift. But above all, Black women have the right to be safe. Well, I feel, I mean, thank you for sharing that quote by Roxanne Gay. I didn't know it before. Um, And I don't, maybe I don't want to speak out loud to what, (laughs) maybe my thoughts, I don't want to necessarily, I'm feeling a certain way because um, there's a quote by James Baldwin that has the same kind of connotation that you just shared from what was said by Roxane Gay. Mm -hmm. And the Baldwin quote basically talks about the fact that safety is always necessarily an illusion. And I don't, and when, and I, and I agree with that. And, and here's what I agree with about that. I want to be able to expand on it because I think that the initial reaction to people hearing that is going to be a lot of reactions. Mm-hmm. And that's because there is no one meaning of safety for all of us. Safety has so many different connotations. And you just listed some of the ones that I shared in terms of my vision of what safety really means. And it changes but I, too. It changes. Mm-hmm. It changes depending on where I'm at, depending on who I'm with. It de- Also, the other part is that um, I don't believe I can possess safety because I don't think safety is a thing. I think safety is a relation. And what I mean by that is, depending on who I'm with, I might feel more or less safe. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on what those people mean to me, I might feel more or less safe. And so I guess the other question or point that I want to make about this, and it's not to evade the question at all, but it's that I don't think that being safe is one thing and that it that it's something that I hold. Mm. Um, it's complicated, you know, because there's no, I don't have a categorical definition and it, people prefer simple things. Uh, people prefer simple answers that are more legible to them. But I guess I'm always thinking about how do we make more safety when the very notion and idea of safety is so contested. Like, we just don't all agree on what may feel safe to us. Like, And it's a kaleidoscope, isn't it? You turn, it you turn the corner, something has changed. You yes. wake up with a cough, something has changed. Thank you. It's a kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. It is a kaleidoscope. I love that. I love that term. I always, I always use it also for justice. Justice is also a kaleidoscope. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah. So I, I think that those are the things. If you ask me today, today, um, somebody just actually paid me back some money they owed me. So I'm less financially insecure. Mm. So therefore I feel safer today than probably if you had talked to me two weeks ago. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so those are that's my thought, but I really appreciate that provocation. It's something I think about a lot. What part of our relationship to safety is something we create alone within ourselves? And what part of it do we have to create together in community? And what are the bridges between the two? Is there something to be learned from movement? The arranging of our breath and our bodies in ways that connects us, fills our cups, and helps us to take care of ourselves? How can self-care and self-prioritization be protective? How can it help to keep us safe? 
I love that you said that because we, in a previous interview, spoke with uh, Martha Jones, author of Vanguard, about the ways in which, as Stacey Abrams has said, we can remain viable for the fight. And she talked about always thinking about the images of Rosa Parks on her yoga mat. And Rosa was by no means the only or first black woman engaged in the work to step on the mat. She's part of a long history of black women who have practiced, defined, and excelled at yoga. And this pushes back on the narrative that black women are somehow new to yoga and it's just suddenly relevant to them. And so I love that you naturally spoke to the fact that this is not new to us. Um, can you actually step into that a little bit more? And were there yogis who were Black women who you saw who made you think, oh, I can do this? What, what, are you, what is your perspective on that, the history of Black women in yoga? Absolutely. I mean, so my mom was always, she's always into like, <laughs> she would say fruity stuff. She was always into like uh, natural living and um, we were members of the co-op and in my hometown and she had a subscription to Yoga Journal when I was a kid and she introduced me to the work of Diane Bondi who is still someone that I, when I think of, uh, when I think about Black yoga teachers, I, she is the first person who comes up for me and she, she just was always a part of my landscape and and she is she is curvy she is she does everything she is so as we do she is out here living her life raising her children living living her yoga as a way of um, of showing up in community and that is what i think is so often overlooked about the yoga practice is that Mm. it's not going back to the idea that like of superficiality like it's not just a thing that you do ultimately the yoga practice I believe allows space for you to show up in community with other people it's a way of refilling your cup so that you can be um so that you can be a part of revolution and and also support others who need help and just show up for your family both biological and chosen and Rosa Parks is such an incredible example of that and I love so much that we have the physical reminder of like she was a yoga practitioner think about the kind of stress that she was under think about the the way that she moved history forward that if we're gonna do that kind of work that is the level that we have to be taking care of ourselves. That's the level that we have to be prioritizing self-care. And that when we don't prioritize personal wellness and self-care, and when we just say, like, I got to take care of everybody, I got to do this thing, that thing, the other thing, we're always pouring from an empty cup. And I think as Black women, it is so crucial for us to remember that because it's the first thing that'll get swept under the rug and forgotten. And I think that um, especially now when we're really getting into the heat of the work and what the, everybody has to be a part of at every level, that the ways in which we care for ourselves is just imperative. And it's something that I think we've, we've always done, always carry traditions forward regardless of 
whether or not we have the support of mainstream media. And I think it's it's important now, though, that we still be mindful of what the influence of mainstream ideology can have on us, the ways that it can be restrictive and make it seem as though, like, do it this way, don't do it that way, be this type of person, don't be that type of person. And I have so much hope and gratitude for all the people who continue to live this example silently often. And that that work that's done in silence is the most important work. And you said about yourself, you had to cheer yourself. I'm going to put it in your voice in the, in the first person. <laughs> I had to cheer myself on um, until everyone else followed. Mm. I think that's fantastic. Those are your words. I love that you're humming over your words because Sorry, it's beautiful. I remember when I no. said it. Sorry. I, I remember years ago I said that in an in interview and I, um, oh, that just, sorry, that just, it's it's been a journey. Yes, I've had to cheer myself on. I think there is a way that <laughs> when you don't fit the mold, <laughs> no sometimes no one believes in you. I feel like as a teenager when I was sleeping on the bar train and doing survival sex work on poke and post in the tenderloin, there is a way that no one believed in me. I literally fit a statistic. Right? Um, I did exactly what my parents had feared. My parents were like, you're going to end up somewhere on a street corner, homeless, and because you've chosen to do this, right? That was what they said to me. Uh, one of the, some of the last words they said to me before I moved out. And there was a moment in my life where I was on that street corner like, oh my God, I literally just became what they said. And it was not my own doing, right? I want people to understand that it was external factors that then shaped what I could and could not do through the world. No one would hire me. And so because no one would hire me, eventually I had nowhere to live. Like, And it's like you're putting Band-Aid solutions towards Band-Aid solutions. I think what I am most grateful to as well is that other women helped guide me through those moments as well. So I was doing sex worker advocacy work um, I was leading an organization. I was 25 years old, um, St. James Infirmary, um, which is a, a sex worker health clinic in the Tenderloin. And we were doing like grassroots work, but I, I was so burnt out from the day-to-day -day interaction of always doing crisis response. Like the every day was um, people would come in and they'd be like, I'm being evicted. Please help me. Or, you know, I was just attacked. Please help me. Or I just got out of prison. I don't know where to go. Like all these different um, sort of crises that I that was my job was to respond to those uh, the crisis and help people sort of help fix people's lives. <laughs> I was sort of like Eon a little bit, a little more. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um but the, the Women's Foundation of California, actually, they have a program called uh, the Women's Policy Institute. And so um, they offered me a spot. Um, I was apprehensive. I was like, oh, no, I could never do that. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a college degree. Like, 
And they're like, no, you can do policy. If we train you on how to do policy, we will sponsor your fellowship for a year and you will be writing laws. And my ego was like, okay, girl, I could write laws. That sounds like a mood. <laughs> that's a thing. I could do that. And that's literally what happened. And so they put me through a program um, and there were 75 other uh, women from across the state of California and non-binary people. And we did this boot camp program in addition to our full daytime jobs. Um, and that's how the Name and Dignity Act for Incarcerated Trans People came out. Um, or came to be. Um, the Gender Recognition Act was also part of that package, allowing non-binary people to identify as X on their DMV. Um, the intersex children policy, the sex worker protection policy, which was the first in the country. I don't know how you define safety, but I do know that you deserve it, that it is your right, and it is therefore my priority can we all make that commitment to each other? Particularly for Black women, for Black trans women, can we allow people's answers for what makes them feel safe to be complex? Can we let it evolve and change? Wouldn't we all gain something if safety was a thing to cherish and not something that was weaponized, unequally distributed, and used as yet another lens to lay bias on the bodies and experiences of Black women? What could we dream into being? What spaces, what structures, and what types of communities? What does it take collectively and individually to ensure that we all have the equal right to feel safe? Being Seen is produced by Harley & Company and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare.